Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the American Outlaws podcast. We are back here with another extremely special guest. Um, we are joined by my co co-founder. What are we going to call it? I, I don't know what we want to call it, Cody, but um, we're calling it AOTV for now. Um, Cody Cooper is my sidekick, and we are also joined by Justin Brunken back at the home ship in Lincoln, Nebraska. And we are very blessed to welcome Jay Demerit to the pod today. So, Jay, welcome. How are you, man? Oh, it's always nice to see Stars and Stripes jerseys on the other side of these Zoom calls. You know, it just makes me feel right at home. <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, we, uh, we've always been huge fans of, of you as a player. And, and the more we've heard about your story over the years, um, I think we're as much of fans of, about the story itself. So uh, we're excited to hear about some of that stuff. But uh, first, we want to start with a little section that we like to call, Look at this photograph. Cody, hit it. All right, here's our first one with maybe a little bit better, better musical artist. Uh, starting off with a picture of you and the legendary Sir Elton John. Maybe you can uh, explain your connection to, to Elton a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, Elton John, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to call him a friend. Uh, I've known Elton John for 15 years now. He was... Uh, uh, he was formerly the owner of Watford Football Club. You know, that's generally where he was in a boyhood uh, in the in the terraces at Watford. He was uh, he grew up just outside of London, where Watford Football Club is. Uh, one of those guys that really, uh, in, in reading with his book as well, is, is is where he really connected with his father. He didn't have a great relationship with his dad, but in the terraces at Watford is where he really connected. And so we always had a really special place in his heart for Watford, and and, and became more and more involved with the club over the years. And, um, and now is considered the club's life president. So what that means is, you know, he's an ambassador for the club. He, he literally is up at five in the morning all around the world, like watching Watford games. He's, hmm. you know, he emails, he, he calls, he, he's an incredible man. I mean, he, and he really does. When he cares about something, he cares fully. And um, thankfully, when you're captain of a Watford football cl club team, like I, have, I was for three years, played over 200 games for them. Uh, you know, again, the, the, he's a guy that, you know, he, he really appreciates something that I brought to the table, which is quite rare when you think about the legend of legends. But, um, and, and again, I'm also one of those guys that's, that likes to do things like, hey, you know, put my arm around him and give him a little noogie or see what he's up to. Or, you know what I mean? I'm one of those guys that really tries to engage in what he's doing. And, and, and you know, my favorite Watford uh, Elton story is, is the first day I met him. He, my first year, I was a rookie. Again, I'd walked to England. No one knew who the hell I was. So, he comes in the locker room first time he's at a Watford game and he's like, uh, uh, where's, where's the American? And he, and he comes in and I'm sitting there in my underwear and, and like, thinking, well, what did Elton John just, just say something about me? And I, and I, I look over at him and he comes over to me and he sits down next to me and he says, uh, he's like, so I hear you're from Green Bay, Wisconsin. He says, what do you think about Brett Favre retiring? And immediately my first conversation as a kid from freaking Green Bay, Wisconsin is about Brett Favre, the Green Bay Packers, with Elton wearing, wearing nothing but underwear. So that was kind of my <laughs> break into the Watford uh, locker room. Um, and then the best part goes is that as he as he started to uh, you know talk to me more about you know football and life, he he said, "Have you ever felt one of these before?" And he, he takes a big ring off his hand, he throws it up, and I catch it, and, and, and it's a New England Patriots Super Bowl ring. And, uh, and, and he says, oh, he says, I'm good. I'm good friends with the crafts. So they gifted that to me on their last Super Bowl win. And there I am. So again, holding a Super Bowl Patriots ring in my underwear, talking about Brett Favre and the Green Bay Packers. 
biggest legend on the planet. I'm like, this is one hell of a rookie year. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I, I went back and I recently, I watched Rise and Shine again before this. And I think one of my favorite parts is they throw up uh, an email you maybe sent to a friend or something like that in the movie that kind of just documents what the past few weeks had happened and you're about to sign your Watford contract. And I think it's so cool that the story is like escalating, like, okay, I did the trial game and then now I'm starting and now they're giving me a contract. And then if that's not surreal enough that you throw in there, like, and it's owned by Elton John. And I just thought like, people always say you can't write something like that. But that, I, if somebody told me that, I'd be like, okay, this is made up <laughs> because that's just, almost, that's like a Forrest Gump step too far almost. hundred <laughs> percent. And you got to kind of like, when you're in those environments too, it, it, it is easy to not engage and be like, yes, Elton, yes. You know, cause you are like, holy shit. Like, I can't believe I'm here, but. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting though. Cause he's such an engaging guy too. And, hmm. you know, and if he likes you, especially, you know, like he loves it, you know, it, he loves the club so much. Like I've never seen anyone like, you know, we all have our celebrity fans, but this guy is like literally on in the chairman's ear. If we're, you know, trades or whatever, you know what I mean? Like trying to find in pl- new players. Like he's into it the way that are like a, literally like a, an owner needs to be. And uh, you know, again, every time I see him, this, this picture was in uh, two times ago when he was in Vancouver and again, it always seems to surprise me. I don't know why, but he comes in and you know, I get to see him before his show. He always sees me last um, before he can go on stage so we can have as much time as he wants. And we talk football. We talk, the, you know, the new squad. We talk about, you know, former players like Ashley Young playing for Manchester United and what's that like. And, you know, he, he always tells me good stories and stuff like that. And, and uh, the best part, though, and this is the craziest part, the last two times he's introduced his band on stage you know like the legends the 40 year old guys the guitarists and and two times in a row now he's he's ended with and it's always great to see jada bear my favorite <laughs> player. and everyone is just like who <laughs> like for real like like shout out on stage twice in front of twenty thousand people at these arenas and people are like who the hell is yeah. jada bear <laughs> they start they start google searching it right then and there it's amazing <laughs> yeah and this is like vancouver you know what i mean <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> oh yeah it's uh, it's it's pretty it's it's pretty amazing but you know again he's a I make these little stereos and, and, and stuff from the, my design background. And he, um, he, uh, he's bought like five rocket logs from me, like really loves all the design stuff. He like, you know, he just, he, I really do consider him a friend. He's, it's not one of those things that like, we actually like email each other. It's like, he emails me back. It's like crazy. You know what I mean? Like, but you never know, you never know in those types of situations that are just, they're just, you make the most of them if you are so fortunate enough to have them. And I'm certainly one of those people. And that has to say something about your play, though, there. I mean, the fact that he liked you that much. I mean, you could be a player at Watford and be like, oh, why is he on the team? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, and, he, and believe me, he would say it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? So that's awesome. That has so, to mean yeah. so much to you. Yeah, and like, like even when he was in Vancouver, I, I took his boys. We went to this park and we, like, trained and, like, I took his kids and, and you know, like, we trained at the park and had an awesome day. And, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's a, we do friend stuff and it's, it's such a – special thing you know for me and 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 i really uh uh you know really appreciate that relationship that's awesome like i said just another great element to your story i think um we're gonna move on to to our next photo here with the i think a different type of english legend got you with wayne rooney at the uh at the world cup um, doesn't have to be about this tackle in particular, but I really like that photo. Uh, but maybe you could just talk a little about your your experience there and and playing against the likes of these guys on the international stage. What do you think about that game? Is that I, I was 
I was, I don't know, a lot of people don't know too much about the story about my corneal replacement. So I had a full transplant surgery six months before the World Cup to replace my cornea in my, in my right eye. And, uh, and, and just before, just be, so I played the rest of the season with a stitch in my eye, finished the season with Watford, had a full replacement, ready to go. Surgeon says, I'll take the stitch out. You should be good to go by the World Cup. Turns out we play Turkey and, and I'm starting to kind of feel a little bit weird in my eye. And, and then by the time we got to South Africa, uh, I had, you know, we had one warm up game against Australia and I was missing goal kick headers by like feet. And like, I was, it was almost <laughs> embarrassing. And I was like, what is going on? So we go to the, do- the eye doctor in the morning, the next morning, we're six days away from the England game. And the doctor says, yeah, you're at a minus six prescription in your right eye. So that's back, back to legally blind in my right eye. And there I was six days before this game, knowing that he's, this is guy that I got to mark. And I'm back to legally blind in my right eye. They can't make contacts that that uh, uh, that high of a prescription in South Africa, so I can't get them. And so I'm freaking out. We're trying not to tell Bob because we're trying to find out ways that we can find them so I can see again because my cornea collapsed, and I, and, and I couldn't. And, I, and, and basically, I'd gone from being able to see with the stitch and having a cornea that was shaped a certain way to now collapsing. So I was back to legally blind, and so I'm supposed to play against the best player in the world. So. I'm like freaking out. I, I don't know what. So I call my agent who was in London and he was coming the day of the England game. So he says, I, so I call my surgeon who, again, I was playing for Watford. So I was living in London. That's where I, that's where I, my surgery was. And he's like, yeah, we have those here and we can, we can send you a couple pairs. So my agent got them and landed the morning of the England game. And we had a motorcycle courier pick up the contacts and drive them to me to the hotel in Bloemfontein, and we and at 3 p.m. on the day of that game, after being completely blind in my right eye for, for six days, uh, I was I played that game and, and literally was the best game I have ever played in my whole entire life. <laughs> well, when you can see, that helps. <laughs> well, I was playing like, blind well, I got this now. I'm here now. <laughs> I can see. Might as well go. Might as well go and, and do my best. And, you know, that was, uh, you know, I've always kind of relished those opportunities of, like, the big-name players. You know, like, I was never supposed to be there in the first place, so... My mindset was always like, I'm here now, you know, like, I mean, like I, you know, I get to be the one to go out and kick this guy. Like, I I can't wait to test him. I'm going to test him every second of the day. I'm going to make sure that he is the player they say he is because I'm not supposed to be here. So I got no fear. I got no fear to go in and test that guy and and test what he's all about and and, and see if he's as good as they say he is. And so that was always my attitude when I'd go out and play against the big teams and against the big players like that. Yeah, and just and, so we're clear, did, hey, shut up, Bronco. <laughs> just so we're clear, did Bob Radley never have any idea that this was the case? No, he knew. I mean, he was very well aware of the eye issue over the past over the past six months. Like he took me. I don't know if you guys remember the game we played against Holland in Holland. It was the it was kind of the last friendly we had before they named the squad. Yeah, the and that was kind of my, my yes, exactly. And so that was my that was my uh, uh, kind of comeback and show show Bob that I was ready to, to, to play again game. And so he was very well aware of it, but we, we definitely dumbed down the situation to see how serious it was that I literally couldn't play because they didn't have prescriptions strong enough to have a contact that big in Africa. So we were going to have to find some other measures, but thankfully again, you know, it was just six days before the world cup, you're fit, you're ready. There, it's a lot of that last couple of days was prep. So it wasn't as serious as it, it probably sounds, but it definitely was in my brain. I was like, what? Like I got to, what if I, you know, I mean, just from the pressure of the situation alone, let alone now I got to figure out how I'm going to see. 
And I'll just say forever, because I think it's technically true now that we played England with a legally blind center back. Yeah. And all they could do is draw us. Rooney so. can't even beat a blind person. That's what I, that's what I took from this. <laughs> all right. That, yeah, uh, you, can that see, can... almost, you can almost not even see that ball right there. Photo. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That, that concludes our, uh, our segment this week for look at this photograph. So thanks for, thanks for playing along with that one, Jay. <laughs> so Jay, I want to start, um, well, I'm going to back up actually. So you, you were mid high school. You said you were real small. You hadn't decided whether or not you're going to play soccer or basketball or, or what have you. How did you land on soccer and what made you believe that you could make, make it in soccer, not just in high school, but maybe, maybe afterwards. Um, you know, I, I think again, athleticism was kind of my core trait, especially as a youngster, you know, I played soccer, basketball, track until I was 18 years old I had you know decent scholarship opportunities in 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 soccer but only one division one scholarship and then in basketball I had one division three scholarship so I was at a little bit of a crossroads but with schooling being important to me because I wasn't again a high academy product or anything I didn't have this bright future in professional sports it was kind of this whole idea of like okay let's weigh up the whole idea of school sports etc and I, I was always kind of this guy that likes to throw myself in the mix of things that are bigger than me so that's why Chicago was enticing you know allowed me to go to design school which is where what I wanted to do for school but then allowed me to really kind of test the market in Chicago which I knew where all the good players were and, and then that kind of really kind of put me into the first arena where I could really see if I was good enough or not so you decide that you're going to play soccer you decide I'm going to go to UIC um, and you get I'm, I'm skipping a little bit here but you, you finish school you you're not picked up by an MLS team um, you have a buddy that you played that you played ball with that, that was from England and and he comes up to you and basically propose this idea to you. Hey, let's move back to England. We can live with my parents. Um, we can sleep on the floor and let's, let's go try to find, find a trial. Something. I guess, how did you convince <laughs> yourself that that was the next step in your life? I mean, I, <laughs> I knew that was coming. Oh, wow. Well, I, a couple ways. Um, one, I, as a college graduate, I know what, I know what that means. It's like, Hey, you just, you just got your degree. What are you going to do? I'm going to wrap a mattress up, put it through a hole in the ceiling and sleep on that floor, play 12th division soccer for 40 bucks. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I totally understand, uh, you know, how that could sound crazy. Uh, but, uh, you know, for me, it, it, it didn't seem crazy a, because, you know, again, I knew I knew I'd have to start at the bottom of the ladder somewhere. You, you know, when you when you don't get drafted in the MLS, which again, the, the net wasn't even close to as deep as it is now. But um, you know, I didn't get picked. I, I had a couple walk-ons to PDL teams, and to continue, I was playing PDL at the time. Uh, but again, anybody from PDL, especially at that time, that walked onto an MLS club was sewn up for four years at twenty grand a year. So I'm like, okay, college graduate, design degree internship at design firm a is 40k out of, out of college cool kid design stuff all this you know or four years at 20 grand and go hey good luck down in charlotte you know what i mean like i don't, I don't know it, it didn't seem like it was it was it was something i really wanted to do on that level i, I knew i was potentially capable of doing it but if i'm going to start at the bottom of the barrel somewhere now enter the opportunity to go live in england you know, live, have a roof under my head for free. Again, I don't care. I, I live in a cardboard box. I don't care. Like, I'm not like that at all. I, I'd rather, I'd choose adventure over, uh, over sensibility sometimes, you know? So uh, that, that's kind of where 
you know, my mindset was I graduated from college. Again, I put four and a half years of work being a student athlete and, and, and wanted to travel and, and go see Europe and had an opportunity to do so. And then again, a roof over my head to start in the 12th division. So I, I looked at the 12th division. Yes, of course, being worse than second division U.S., but still like not that different. So it's like I got, I got to start somewhere. And if that light at the end of the tunnel is so much brighter in England, the biggest jungle in the world, you know, that why not? Let, let, let's go in that circle and see what happens. And I went to a game right when I landed. We went to this. Uh, it was a, I think it was QPR Tranmere, which would have been in the third division at the time. And it was just like Loftus Road, QPR, right downtown London, you know, right on the pitch. And it's like just crazy. And and, and that game on, I was just looking around going, what? This is what real football is. And I got to be a part of this because this is this is so what I want to do. Because, I, you know, again, so that kind of really started the mindset and the work ethic that was required to start, you know, fighting for the right to be an American renegade in London. Yeah, so... If you guys haven't seen the documentary, it's Rise and Shine. Take the, it's on Netflix. Take the time to get on there and watch this because it, it it's it's not on Netflix. That's yeah, the we're trying. It, was. it should be everywhere. It was it was on Netflix, <laughs> but uh, those deals are now done. Okay, we finally got the rights back. So it, uh, we actually just put it back on YouTube. It's for free. Type in Rise and Shine full movie. It'll come up. We want to, you know, again, this is a story that was paid for by, you know, thousands of donors on Kickstarter in 2011 to turn my story into a documentary film. And, you know, this story isn't something people should pay for. It's something that everyone should watch because it's literally about life and, 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 the, and the things that you can do if you take it upon yourself to create your own story. Yeah. Yeah. It was partially paid for by a lot of AO members, too, out there. I remember... Uh people were loving it and people were participating putting on like uh, uh viewing parties and all these different cities and it was really cool how even our community came together for your story and man i don't know what that would have felt uh from you to have that but man it it was cool to see well as you can see there's still flags behind me you know now again what's that what that happened to me and again i remember i'll remember for the rest of my life one of the most special things in the world is i was sitting on a park bench in vancouver and the and the and the 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 campaign was 215 grand on Kickstarter when no one was donating money in 2011. No one knew how to even give money online, yeah. and it was just like celebrities were coming up videos and things because they had just watched the story on, on on the World Cup. And I think we all as humans appreciate human stories. And and I remember you know we had to, we had to raise 200 grand for FIFA footage and Premier League footage just to show two minutes of footage on a freaking. Oh, I know, I remember that. <laughs> how much it costs to produce that in a, in a documentary film where people can watch, you know, you got to pay 50 grand a minute for FIFA footage, 50 grand a minute. So it's like, you know, we have to, they had to pay for this footage. So it was like, you had to do it. Um, but then to have everyone come together, it just, it, it just, again, personified what it was all about. The whole rise and shine is, is, is that, you know, things are much bigger than me. The whole, it's the idea that these things can happen. And, and, uh, you know, I became the vehicle of Rise and Shine. So that was my empower moment, sitting on that bench going, oh, shit, now I got I got work to do because now Rise and Shine is my story. And now I got to use this to create other ones for other people because that's the cool. point. You know, you know what I mean? For me, I use Rise and Shine. Again, we're a charity, a music festival, a youth program. We do all this stuff now based on that whole idea. And, that, and, and truly, I, that, I, I live Rise and Shine now. What's, and I think I, – sorry, Justin. I no, think that's – Tell me to shut up. Yeah, yeah, just stop. Put you on mute. I think the craziest thing about this, Jay, the thing that just sticks in my mind is the point at which you guys were physically riding bicycles around London trying to find, trying to get a training session or some kind of trial. 
And at that, I mean, and then to see, you know, years later that you're playing at, at a World Cup and you guys have got out of the group, it's just, it's, it's fascinating because it's not just a story about soccer. It's not a story just about sport. It's a, it's a story about motivation and perseverance and, and, and having a dream and following it. And I, that's as cheesy as that, as that is, it, it really is crazy. Well, and you got bikes were too expensive, or I mean, cars were too expensive. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> for sure well that, you know again we all have to understand our situations but again i never lost this sense of i guess adventure of it all you know what i mean like i i i i think i we always need to remind ourselves and not to take our stories so seriously and and, and, to, and to really enjoy the whole like the whole journey side of it i mean again everyone says that it's all about the journey but you know in all, in all honesty like the things we can do with our life just by saying yes is great you know again i have an opportunity to go to england and live in an attic and play 12th division I'm not going to do it the hard way. Am I not going to say yes? Of course I am. I get to go hang out in London, rent some bikes in Amsterdam, go smoke a joint, hang out with my, go. you know what I mean? Like whatever, man. Like, I'm, you know what I mean? Like these yeah. are the types of things that I'm like, why wouldn't I take advantage of that? Because that's life. That's experience. These are things that we also have to take in consideration in creating our own stories. And, you know, yes, I came with the purpose. I think that's also to note too. I didn't come here on vacation. Hmm. I came here with a purpose, but you know, and again, if we don't take it seriously and we don't think that we're going to show up on English shores and go knock on Chelsea's door and be like, yo, I'm this American Division One athlete. Can you give me a tryout? Like, who's going to do that? There's no way I'm doing that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting down there in the trenches and kick mud at people for a while and see if I got a shot. You know what I mean? That's what I'm going to start with. But then I got my shot and I started, I started doing that. And then all of a sudden, you know, the cool thing about England, and this was my consciousness in going there, was like, it's the size of one U.S. state. And there's 96 professional teams. The concentration yeah. of ability of the net to be a part of something. If I am good, which again, I only had three and a half years of soccer experience at that point. You know, <laughs> I had three and a half years of college soccer experience. That's it. I played soccer at a full-time level until when I was 19 years old. That was it, first time. So it's like I, scouts aren't looking at me. The ODP programs aren't saying, "Hey, we should draft him at you know their third spot." They're like, they're not even, I'm not even on their radar. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I know this. And I'm not comparing myself to anyone that would go over there on a radar. I'm like, hey, non-radar guy, this is your path. You got to go and sleep on floors and play in front of three people and a dog and travel around in a van and all over England and try to and try to get 60 bucks in an envelope. That's what I – and again, I knew that that's where I'd have to start. So, and again, once I started it, that's when you start to meet other people and you start to play against guys that just got released from QPR in the third division the year before. And you're like wiping the floor with these guys and going, oh shit, like maybe I am good enough. Maybe. And then all of a sudden, again, it's the concentration. They go, oh wow, the, where'd you come from? Who's this guy? Scout goes, hey, I know a guy at Oxford third division. Do you want to try out there? And then all of a sudden it starts to snowball and, and that's what happened. Dude, yeah. You're so, added, you know, your attitude and and passion and positivity is like contagious. Like I can imagine like you going there and like, everyone's like, I don't know what he's selling or what he's doing, but I'm in, man. That's how I feel right now. Oh yeah. That's, that's the demerit secret. You know, for me, it's just, but again, it's like, it's like this, this, like we call it the tight loose line. We're like, it, it's like this year you're there with purpose and you're there with, with, with thought and consciousness, but like, I am ready for anything. I'm as loose as they come when it comes to like being ready and, you know, up for anything and just saying yes to situations to get the most out of them. And I think when you get to that, that level or ride that tight loose line in the white ray, you know, great opportunities present themselves. Uh, you're talking about that experience uh, with your buddy. Was it Kieran? Is that his name? 
Kieran, yep. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Um, I think as I have read about it and watched your movie and all those sorts of things, the kind of thing that popped into my mind was when you hear a lot of like musical artists or actors or celebrities talking about how once they made it, they almost kind of missed the days when they were the, the starving artist or struggling or, or on the up. Once you kind of made it when you were like in Old Trafford or at the World Cup or something like that, was there a part of you that was like, man, now that I've got here, I miss like the chase? Or were you just like, thank the Lord every single day that I'm that I'm doing this? Yeah, the latter. You know, I, again, I, I always, again, when you come from the places that I had come from, it, it, it's almost impossible not to appreciate that, you know, you know like, to, you know, you kind of wear the dirt, if you know what I mean. It, 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 you know, because when not many people have to go through that to get to professionalism, because they're already part of that program at 12, 13, 14. So, again, this is part of the reason, like, through my youth programs, now I'm trying to change that. Like, because that's why kids right now in our, in our, in our current high-performance programs don't have dirt. They don't have dirt because they've never actually been told that, A, it's part of the code, or B, you know, I'll just fine. You can all just wash your jersey, and, and your dirt will be it won't be there the next day. You know what I mean? Like that 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 in itself is a metaphor. It's the mindset that I really, you know, I I had to earn. And, and and when you earn that mindset, and you start getting those things like World Cups or starting for Watford and walking out of the tunnel against Manchester United, like there's no way in hell you would take that position for granted because you're like, I know what it took to get here. I I know what it's like to be on the other side. So why would I ever be scared of that opportunity? And I call that the, like when I do a lot of speaking engagements and stuff now and talk to kids, I call it like the, the tunnel mentality. And the tunnel mentality is like when you're standing in a big situation, whether you're about to walk into your job or whether you're, you know, uh, you know, about to go walk into a trial with a team or go play in front of 50,000 people. It's like you have this ability to, to look to the tunnel, like to the right of me and go, and holy shit, this is Manchester United. Oh, what if I mess up in front of 75,000 people? Oh my God, Ronaldo is like 6'1", 190 pounds, pure, beautiful muscle. And it's like, oh my God, this dude's going to crush me today. You know, like these are easy ways that you can go and psych yourself out. So when that tunnel when walk out and the lights are on, you're like, oh shit, I'm going to fuck up here. Oh my God. And then you play nervous and then that breeds that whole idea of, 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 of kind of I'm not ready for this or, or, or oh my God, I'm this, this situation is going to make the most of this, but or most of me. But for me, I was in that tunnel and I looked across and I was like, wow, he is really good looking. I'd probably date that guy. <laughs> but like, and like, I was always like making fun of the situation that like, I can't believe I'm here. But now that I'm here, you damn right, I'm going to go and test that guy and make sure that he, you know, isn't the privileged, good looking dude that, that, that his reputation, you know, is, is saying, I'm going to test it. You know, it's like the Jordan theory, which we've all been watching. It's like, you can test that guy all day long, but he'll beat you every time for the most part but at first you got it like i don't I think that, that bj armstrong talks about or when steve kerr finally stood up to him and was like i'm gonna stand in front of that guy's face and say i got what you got let's go and see what you got and and that was kind of my whole entire when i was in that tunnel it was always like understand that how far you got so get energy because of that don't psych yourself out psych yourself up and that was always like i get to be the one that has the opportunity to go play against the world's best players this is a great opportunity for me to test. This is a good opportunity for me to get better. And this is a good opportunity for me to take advantage of this incredible situation I'm so fortunate to be a part of. So, you know, again, that created energy for me. It never right, it never turned into this daunting task of fear. You know, it wasn't because I, you know, I had I'd gone through those daunting tasks of fear by some of the steps I had to take along the way. So I'm gonna I'm gonna skip quite a bit here, but um, so you're playing in the, in the 12th division in England, you're playing Sunday league, drinking beers with, with guys waiting for your chance. 
Um, and eventually your chance comes, you get, you get signed by Watford. And, uh, and I think Andy Bothroyd was your manager at that time. And within two years, you guys get, you get into the playoff final to get promoted to the premier league. And, and if you guys haven't seen the, the footage, you need to watch it, but, um, you score the goal. One of the goals that gets you guys to promotion and what in a game that is by dollar bigger than the Super Bowl, if I if I'm doing my math correctly. Um, tell us about, you know, I think your family came over. Tell us about the experience going into that game and how are your nerves? How did how did you keep it all together? Um, uh, you know, again, you're, you're right. Uh, the, the, the championship English championship playoff final is the most lucrative professional sports game in all of sports. So I think now it's almost like almost up to a hundred, a hundred plus million dollars that goes to the winner because of the TV windfall. When that, when the championship teams come into the premier league, because the premier league is the most watched league in the world, the TV money is incredible. So not only does it help with stadium improvements, but it also helps kind of bring a kitty. in so you can start to buy players to even try to stay in the league. And, you know, everyone knows if you're a soccer fan, how important and how incredible the premier league is as far as the talent pool and how hard it is to stay in that league. Um, and, and so, you know, again, fast forward or actually rewind second season. I I'm fortunate enough to play some games in my rookie year. Uh, I get the starting role by my second, uh, I, I, we, we hire, we're, we're tipped to go into the third division. Pundits are predicting us to go down again. So we're in the first division championship. So we are predicted to go to the third division. We hire the 34 year old youngest manager in all of professional leagues, AD Boothroyd for as the youth director of Leeds United. Zero professional ex- coaching experience, and he's about 5'8", 140 pounds. There's nothing wrong with that ass. size, by the way. <laughs> well, it's, it, it, we'll put it this way. When you when you walk in front of 30 grown professionals and six of the guys in the room are, are older than you, and this is your first professional coaching experience, and the first question that you say when we're all in the meeting room is, with what's going on in this room, by the end of the season, we're going to be promoted to the Premier League. And we all looked at this dude like, what is this cowboy talking about? Like, again, I didn't know shit. I didn't know. I was the, I was in my second year. Like, I still, like, I had no idea what was going on. I was just like, hey, this dude seems kind of crazy. You know, that guy's kind of like me. And, 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 and that's kind of was my first assessment. But when you get this guy that says that for you, and then, like, you get to look at the older pros looking at each other like, who is this guy? But then, like, he had this incredible energy and he had this incredible belief. And then he started really on the man management side and, Every day, this thing, every day he would take a guy and he'd put his arm around him and walk him around the training ground after the training. And it was just this communication where he just started to get more out of us and ask us questions and really challenge us. And then he did this thing uh, called the circle mentality, which was every Sunday after the Saturday games, there'd be 30 chairs in the circle. And if any you had anything to do with the game day operations, we would sit in that circle and we would spend an hour discussing what happened. Good, bad, ugly goals. This one worked, this worked well. This person got injured. Why? And by the end of that season, we were in playoff positions and we all believed in each other in such a deeper way. And it, we, we were basically, by the time playoffs came, unstoppable. And we, we, we made it into the playoff spots. We, we played Crystal Palace home and away. We beat them four zip on aggregate in the first, two, in the first round of the playoffs to, to set up the, the playoff final, which is always at a neutral location. Uh, now it's at, back at Wembley. But uh, at this point, it was in the Cardiff Stadium in Millennium, uh, the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff, sorry. And, uh, you know, 75,000 seat stadium, Cardiff, Wales, uh, massive, you know, again, in England, you can't sit next to each other. So half, half of the stadium is in white, half of the stadium is in Watford yellow. Uh, it's kind of like, looks like a Super Bowl atmosphere, fireworks, yeah. all that other stuff. And, 
you know, again, the same idea, you know, by the end of that season, he had empowered me enough as an individual to feel like I was better than, better than I was just like the rest of us. And, you know, walked out of that stadium and we smashed Leeds 3-0 in front of 75,000. I scored the first goal kick. Uh, we had some guns like Ben Foster uh, in the goal. He was on loan from Manchester United. Ashley Young was uh, our young winger that grew up in Watford. Uh, we had other guys like Chris Eagles and, and, and a couple other guys that were on loan from Premier League teams. So we had a kind of a mixed squad, but then we had like Malky Mackay, 38-year-old, like Scottish pro, like you know, we had a leadership group that was really incredible. And, and, and for me as a new guy, it was just such a great experience to really make me understand what high performance football was about. And uh, uh, again, I was, I was fortunate enough to, to again, put myself in a situation where I could score. I got, I got the man of the match ball. So I got to talk in front of 80, you know, 75 and on a jumbotron. And there I am a Premier League player and, and no one in America has ever even heard. Of me. So <laughs> So that was kind of the first thing I needed to get over. It's like I'm I'm sitting at a bar in 2006 after with a Premier League medal on my chest, talking to my friends in Chicago, watching the World Cup <laughs> with all the players I'm going to be playing That's against right. in, in a month. In a month, I'm going to be playing against all these dudes, and I'm in a bar in Chicago getting hammered with my friends. So it was it was a, it was, a, it was an interesting time. Let me say it. Let me say that. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm interested to know when you. Just because the the Premier League wasn't, I don't think widely of as widely available in the U.S. as it is now, where you can watch every game whenever. Uh, did you have a, a really firm grasp on kind of how the whole league worked and the ins and outs of it, or were you learning a lot once you got there? And a lot of teammates were kind of telling you about different things to expect, different atmospheres, things like that. Um, a little bit of both. I think, again, in England, you kind of live through the culture there. So, you, you know, not only as a, as, a, as a footballer for a couple of years, but also just, you know, again, there's there's 32 page pullouts every Saturday about all 96 teams and the games that are on and the player profiles. And so you really do learn quite quickly about the culture of the sport and what it means and what the atmospheres are like. And you know, I had a good buddy that I played with that. Watford that was from Newcastle so anytime Newcastle would play in London he would bring me to the games and like I could kind of feel what that was feeling like and uh, again by no means is it was it like it is in reality you know what I mean playing in the Premier League as a player is, is incredible like you, the, the feeling of it the media the exposure the you know the, the stadiums and ultimately the best players in the world you play every week you know that's not like that in the championship you get an international every three or four games but you know, in, in, in the Premier League, you're playing against the best players in the world every week and every team. So in a way, that was exciting. I, I had so much energy for that Premier League season, but it was definitely mentally the hardest because you can't switch off. In that league, you cannot switch off because it doesn't matter if it's the 80th minute or the 88th minute. If you give Drogba one chance, nine times out of ten, he's putting it He's putting it where he needs to put it. And, and that's the difference between the Premier League and the championship. So you guys get promoted – no, Brunken. I wasn't only. saying anything. I was just, I was just doing. Oh my god, because that's just thinking about that. Uh, <laughs> Crazy. This is absolutely insane. You're right. So you guys get promoted, and soon after that, I think in 2007, is you got your first call up. Uh, you play the Gold Cup, um, and then right after that, uh, a couple years later, you guys go to the Confederation Cup, and we had Jimmy Conrad and Benny Falhyber on uh, the last podcast, the last two podcasts, and they've talked about you guys' run in the Confederation Cup. What was when you think back about that run in South Africa, you know, beating Spain, nearly beating Brazil in the final, what are some of the things you remember about that, about that tournament? Um, I mean, the first thing I recognize is just, that was like my first opportunity to feel like I was a starter for the national team. You know, I looked at that as, 
again, kind of the same idea. Thankfully, I'd been in the position before, kind of thrust into this opportunity. And, you know, for the story, as the story goes, I'd, I'd played in a Gold Cup and I'd had a couple appearances. I'd been on the bench for two years uh, for the U.S. team. Again, I didn't get my first cap for a U.S. national team until I was 27 years old. So, uh, you know, I was, I was already late to the party. But the good thing was is that I was coming from a league where I was already at the level. So once I got my opportunity to play for the U.S., I was ready for it. I was ready to walk in there because those stadiums weren't any different and the players weren't any different. So I think that allowed me to kind of hit the ground running when I got that opportunity against against uh, those teams in the Spanish or, or the Confederations Cup. And, you know, famously, it was already Brazil, Italy, Egypt. You know, these are teams that if you can show that you're worth it, in those environments, you know, those are quick ways to hurdle it. And that's what I, I will always appreciate. Uh, and I'll say this too about that, that time of my life was that I'll always appreciate Bob Bradley's ability to say yes to me when he didn't have to, you know, Boca Negra in the last game of the gold cup got injured. Uh, you know, he wasn't supposed to play in that game. I get this opportunity to play against Brazil and Italy. He comes back for Egypt and, and, and Bob, calls me in his office he's like i'm not put i'm not putting boca back in i see i like your relationship with gooch i like you know your dynamic i like the fact that you're you know you know a little bit more gritty out there you're doing things that you don't you know normally people don't want to do i like what that brings to this team and he stuck with me and, and, and for me that was the first time where i realized that you know maybe i belonged there you know and for me i guess that you know again it took two years of me sitting on the bench to do that but it also takes opportunities like that where those those pieces actually meet where you're in an environment where you actually feel like you are in a whole city, you know, you can go play against Guatemala in a gold cup. You'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm a national team player, but you're not, you, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you are, but you're not, you're not playing against Spain in the Confederations cup. So, you know, again, for me to, to get those games under my belt and also to come off that field with wins with guys like saying, great job, Jay, you know, I know you deserve to be there. Like that's the kind of the reinforcement you need to, it's kind of the reinforcement you need to, to feel validated. And, and, and for me, that, that was that Federation's Cup was validation for me to know that I belong there, but also, again, reignite my fire to be like, all right, now I got a year to prepare for a World Cup because that, that was way too awesome to give up. Speaking of, well, speaking of validation, my extensive research uh, Wikipedia page says that there's a Barcelona newspaper that called your performance against Spain superb when they don't even care about <laughs> Americans in U.S. soccer at all. I mean, that has to be validation a little bit. And it's funny that's the only thing mentioned about the game <laughs> is that fact. Yeah. Jay, they did must, you add they that? Must that I was, they must have known that I was friends with Elton John or something. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys... Yeah, well, you know, again, I think you just think about those types of things. And, and again, I'm always, I've always loved being in those big light situations because those are great arenas for you to show who you are. And, and, and when everyone's watching and, and when you when you create a mindset where you're prepared for those moments because you've done the work and you create a mindset that those are the moments that you live for, uh, you know, again, those are the things that can happen. And, and, and again, I, same with a playoff final or same with a tryout for Watford and you have one game to show a coach that you belong on the field. Like there, there are certain moments within my career where I was so ready for that moment that it wasn't going to not happen, if you know what I mean. And, 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 you know, I look at that Confederations Cup run as a way for, for me to, to show those types of things. Yeah. Well, I think most of us remember that time as, as U S fans as some of the best moments that we have as fans. And that was kind of, we were playing, you know, we were really competing on the world stage with, with the top teams. And I think, you know, 
my my internet went out at halftime of that game, so I I remember winning the, the Confederation Cup. But <laughs> <laughs> so after that, you guys you go on, um, and then you go to South Africa for the for the actual World Cup, and um, you guys put in another amazing performance and 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 really inspire people back home. You know, we had that was some of the earlier days of AO AO watch parties and some of the bigger the bigger events that we ever had. You know, kind of at the beginning. So um, what do you what do you remember being down there during the World Cup and and kind of the traction you guys gained coming back home? Um, you know, I think I think what I love most about that team is that we just really love playing with each other, and I think that that camaraderie showed in our performances. It showed in our ability, and and it also what I what I really love about that time too is that it showed. Bob Bradley's ability to pick a good squad and, 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 you know, you got guys like Ricardo Clark or, uh, you know, Torres that are coming in and playing a role in one game that's necessary because Bob's, you know, ability to understand tactics and to really do his research to preempt to who of the 11 are or how guys can complement each other. Even if on paper, the media makes it not look like, like, like it's sensible, you know, Bob was a good, he was good at that. And, and that was, I think one of his greatest skills is that he, his pool of players that he brought together really loved playing with each other. We fought for each other. I think we all brought different things to the table. And I think, again, those, those types of performances through those years really reflected in our performances. And, you know, we deserve to be on the field with those teams. Those performances were deserved. There was no one that would look at that Spain game and say that we didn't deserve to win. You couldn't, you, you, you couldn't do it tactically. You know, again, it wasn't probably pretty, but it was tactically, you know, well done. Uh, the, the talent pool you know, work to be strength was, was where it, when it needed to be. Uh, Tim's stopping was, was when it needed to be. The talent was still there too. You know, these weren't flukes. These were guys that were good at the sport as well. And I think Bob's ability to put us all together in a room and fight for each other uh, was, was, I think, what I remember most about that time. And I had a question on that. Um, something that I, you've mentioned it a couple of times here, and obviously it comes up basically any story you read about Jada Merritt is the word grit. And I think a lot of those guys too that you've mentioned – um, had grit and you've talked about that. And recently there was a quote that I had written down because you said that uh, not a lot of U.S. players have that that quality right now. I think you had particularly uh, pointed out Pulisic as somebody who, who does have grit because of uh, kind of the youth ranks that it came up in Germany. Um, but I'll read the quote here. So you said, uh, I want to know where the, the Jay demerits of now are. I want to know where the Brian McBrides are. I want to know where the gritty guys are. Um, the Rockies of the world, where are those people? And I just found that really interesting. And I was wondering if you could expand upon that a little bit, because I think, I think a lot of people would agree with that. I was just wondering how, as a player, do you go out and just seek adversity? You know, obviously not everybody's going to do the incredible stuff that you did, but what are some ways that you think players could put themselves through the ringer a little bit to develop those kind of qualities that that team had? Well, you know, that's that's an it's a great question, and and, it, and it's certainly something that I, I am always trying to uh, experience. Kind of, you know, I guess my opinion my opinion on it is is that we are not if we look at these things as a as a product. You know, if you look at a U.S. soccer system as a as a, as a production wheel, and it, it, there's this conveyor belt that comes out of it, and it says what do these players look like, and what do they feel like, and what are they like when they come off this conveyor belt. Right now, they're all pretty similar. Right now, they're all good technical pairs that have great stories. They're great athletes. They have superficial American fights. You know, I would call it superficial with the greatest respect uh, of like, you know, again, our programs are, 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 are no doubt creating capable people. 
but grit is something that you can only learn by experience. And grit is something is, 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 is again, our, the job and the answer to the question is to create more experiences where grit is required. So again, how do you do that in a, in a program right now where high performance and badges, you know, high, high performance programs for me right now, high, high performance programs for me right now are, aren't, aren't creating enough grit because we're either not creating enough circumstances where guys figure out how to lose, how to go against people that are better than them, how to uh, have mentorship where we start to teach humility through experience. These are all ways that, you know, we can learn in a way where we don't actually have to do it ourselves. Um, we can put more people in, a, you know, again, in England, they do it in a loan program. You know, you got guys that are Manchester United U20s that are playing in the championship getting you know, elbows from guys like Melky Mackay and Scottish guys that just want to kick these little guys. That, that's part of it. Where, where's the loan? Where's these ability to go play above people that don't give a shit about you? Where's that? Where's the, where's the ability to go and sit in an environment that you feel uncomfortable? If you're a U.S. national team player, you're going to walk in every room with confidence because you're cool and you play for the U.S. national team. You don't know what it's like to sit on a table with a bunch of 17-year-old kids in England when you're the only one there from that country and you're last in line at the meal table. Your meals are prepared for you. You don't you wear you get your jersey signed, you know, it's folded for you every morning. There's no way that you're creating grit in the opportunity to create it in a way that life can create that for you too. Because grit is grit isn't just a soccer program; it's a life program. It's a how do I put myself in an uncomfortable zone, come out of the end of that because I've had to work hard, take on adversities, maybe maybe not believe what I believe in anymore, or have somebody say that I don't believe in you. There's a million reasons why we create grit and, and how these things you come out of this product by being a better, more capable, and therefore have a better ability to fight for something. If you've done stuff, if you've experienced adversity, if you know what it's like to get punched in the face and stand up again and hit hit the guy back you know what that's like now you can do it whenever when it matters but if you don't even know how to do it and you've never done it how the hell are you going to do it in front of sixty thousand people can i reiterate I that we, can i, reiterate can I just, that? I just want to run through a brick wall right now <laughs> real quick grit <laughs> is not a soccer program grit is a life program i cannot agree more that is such a good statement like grit is a life program and i think people forget about that that is I do want to run through a brick wall right can now. We, <laughs> you that. Can we have like, can we get Ernie Stewart on the line and have him create like a grit coach that is lifetime appointment, Jada Merritt, and he Hire just pounds oh. the shit mentally out of our players for oh, ever. Believe me, guys, like I'm already thinking about ways to do it. And one of the things, like again, we're already talking potentially to U.S. soccer about this digital program that we're creating through Rise and Shine because this is one of my initiatives is to create grit. And how do you do this digitally? You can do it physically. I, you know, kids come up to the camps. I can walk them through stuff. I can tell them stories. We can do this on Zoom. We can do all sorts of ways that we can create mentorship and, and, and mentality through through storytelling. But it's also like, how would you do what somebody else has done to create grit artificially? So it's like one of the things that we're going to do from the interaction is like, if you take the Jada Merritt lesson or you watch, or one of the challenges will be to like, you got to say to your time lapse, I'm sleeping on the floor because I want to make my varsity team. And then you gotta you gotta set your bed on your floor and you gotta sleep on your floor because <laughs> sleeping on your floor is a sacrifice of something you're willing to get out of your comfort zone to do when your bed is right here. And you gotta do it next to your bed, right next to it. And if I see in the time lapse that you're getting out of your bed and go back in your bed, you're not creating grit. You're not creating adversity. And this is not even adversity. This is sleeping on a freaking floor. But it's still <laughs> somewhere where you have to start because the kids now they don't even know what that's like. They have no idea what it's like yeah. to sleep on a floor. And that is a truly in a metaphorical way the biggest problem about why there is no gritty guys because it's our systems. And again, I'm not just talking about us soccer. I'm talking about youth programs in general, from music to sports, to arts, 
to you name it. We're, we're creating single lane individuals that are just thinking that they're the best in the world. And all they know is, and their knowledge is based on what they read on Google, not in what they've done or situations they've put themselves in or experiences that allowed them to create a mindset that they can go and do whatever the hell they want because that's what rise and shine is. That's what's what I did at 18. I was like, I can do this. I've worked nine jobs. I know who I am. I know what support is. I got family that support me. I can take chances. I, I got a job. I got, I got a, that I can have if I fail. Those are things that I've learned to go and have the confidence to create these experiences that now give you the life that you want. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Seriously. Get out of your comfort zone is like some of the best advice there for sure because if you if you're not doing no, that you're not advancing yes correct yeah. you know what i mean it's not just like oh i'm out of my comfort zone this is what it's supposed to feel like like i am constantly even now seeking seeking uncomfortableness because i know what it's like to be comfortable we all do yeah but again if we want to get what we want if we're going to do things that people think are crazy then you got to put yourself in the arena to do them and you first you got to have the confidence to do so because you can't knock it out of the park when the lights are on if you haven't prepared yourself just into the arena again that's all part of the team too you know what i mean like how are guys going to know about big games that they've never played in that well one you can start to talk to older players about what big games are like you can start to go to the stadiums and see what it's like in real time and then you can walk in there because you know what it's like in real time you've heard from other people what it's like to walk out in there and then you bring your own mindset into that experience but then within that becomes the learning yeah you might fall flat in your face but at least you're going to learn from that and then makes you know what i mean all that starts with the whole holistic wheel of how do you create grit have you ever asked like just to get into the locker room. I had this idea, uh, cause like there's some of this grit and we had this idea. Why are like in college, some of these teams bring in ex players and they come into the locker room. They give these pep talks of like, this is what it used to be like. This is blah, blah, blah. Like get in that locker room sometimes for the national team. Like, like, have you asked, have you done that? And would you, cause like that, like <laughs> would be amazing. <laughs> Well, yeah, yes, I would. Yes, I do. And uh, unfortunately, again, this is part of the problem is, 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 is that we're not creating enough. Again, I'm, I'm, I do stuff. Bummer, we lost him. Sorry, Jay, can't hear you if you can hear us. <laughs> Like Weston McKinney walks in the locker room and Jay Demare just punches him in the face. Oh, no. Like, <laughs> hey, hey, get that's off his job. Get yeah, TikTok and get on the fucking. <laughs> Dude, give me some fucking push-ups. Dude, I thought about that same thing before. It's like, why are we not bringing in these players to like talk to these new players? Like, this is what yeah. it's like. Like, there's grit. This is crazy. Like, you I've know, been thinking this. Why don't they have Landon Donovan, Clint Dempsey, fucking, you know, all these guys that would correct. Break- Break their right. skulls. He's coming. Come. <laughs> Remind me to cut this part out. <laughs> no way, dude. You gotta leave this in. <laughs> hey, what's up? I think it works now. Yeah. You're not. You're not gonna believe this, but my phone overheated and it gave me the temperature thing. No. Oh my god. You're putting out your a lot of heat, was, dude. Yeah, your phone was getting hyped too. I was getting <laughs> overheated. And so I can imagine your phone being there live with that. Oh, seriously. Like this sun's just beating down in here. I swear. It's on the back of my computer. Like my computer's up here. My computer. Like, well, the temperature thing goes. Holy shit. Well, we'll. Uh, I guess we can kind of fast forward and uh, we don't want to take too much of your time, but. Um, 
so 2014, you got, you end up having to hang up the boots for for a couple of reasons. I think you said injury obviously played a, a big part of it. But um, tell me about what you have going on right now with with the stereos. And I, I don't want to butcher the name, but I, is it Portmanteau? Well, Portmanteau, but Rocket Logs is the is the product that we're doing okay. right now. So that's easy to say. Rocket Logs. Rocket Logs. Uh, okay. So tell me uh, about tell me what you got going on. Um, now with Rise and Shine with with speaking because I mean I think all of us are are definitely going to want to hear more about this now and um, tell me about the the rocket logs. Well, I, my background is in design, so I have a degree in product design. So as I finished playing sports, I was kind of like, okay, I didn't want to go get creative again, and so I started a stereo company uh, called Portmanteau because our first uh, product was taking old suitcases and turning them into like boom boom boxes. <laughs> And so it was like this vintage like stereos that we would make out of these uh, uh, these cool suitcases and trunks. And and then that kind of graduated to two other products. And then we graduated into the third product. So we have beer pong stereos. Uh, we got um, uh, coffee table stereos. And then I make these things called rocket logs, which are made out of like recycled trees, log rounds up here in BC. Because I live, as you guys can see in the mountains, I'm, uh, I live in the forest now. So I started to kind of use my design stuff and stereo companies are cool because I like to party and, and, and I like to design stuff. So for me, a stereo company was something that uh, <laughs> would seem like a natural fit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I guess for me, it was always like this whole idea of I never really got to use the creative, creative side of the actual, the practice of product design. Um, I've always been intrigued by product design. It created my mindset, you know, design mindset. I don't know if you, any of the viewers or listeners have ever kind of read about design mindset, but I think it was crucial to my development as to kind of what allowed me to have the mindset to create my story. I think a part of it was just being creative and, and, and my, you know, my, my college degree in design kind of allowed me to, to express that creativity in a lot of different ways or see maybe channels or roads that I didn't maybe would have seen if I didn't have a creative curriculum background. And so now I just, you know, again, because of that background and because with Rise and Shine, I started the charity uh, in a music festival. Now we're at uh, almost like 2,000 people uh, that we, we do a music festival as a fundraiser that raises money uh, through electronic music in the fields of British Columbia to, to send half of the program to captain's camps for free. So I use, uh, um, you know, we get community programs, we get undeserved ki underserved kids that come up and they get to come to this camp out leadership camp where we talk to entrepreneurs and Olympians and world cup stories around bonfires. And it's more of a leadership program. And kind of like, like I said, as far as grit is concerned, I feel, I feel like rise and shine is a life program. This is something that for me as a, as the head of it starts to realize that, you know, again, I, I don't, I don't hold sports any higher than I do design. You know what I mean? So for me, it was always about creating a better program for the youth to actually understand that being a designer is as cool as being a soccer player because 99% of you guys in high performance programs aren't going to be the soccer player that you dream you will. And again, that's not to be the antithesis of the dream. I am the antithesis of the dream. I am someone that knows what it's like to not get picked and to know, you know, I, I know what that's like. But at the end of the day, I, I was able to make it happen on the other side. But I also understand that I'm also the anomaly of the other way around where I was the one that wasn't supposed to make it, but actually did. What about the kids that weren't supposed to make it and did it? You know, there's 99% of those around. And so what are they doing? Right now, they're suffering from mental health problems, in all honesty. That's what they're doing. At 18, 19 years old, they don't know who they are. They didn't get the scholarship. They're, you know, the badge is gone. And now they're like, well, who am I? What am I doing? And so that's really where the Rise and Shine Youth Program has come into play. 
um, you know, we create a holistic version with mentors of all, all walks of life. We, we have professionals in all fields from, you know, chefs and we always cook meals with the kids or we have designers come up and we do a design exercise with a bunch of soccer players or the DJ camp, you know, the coaches, our coaches, uh, our DJs that play Coachella or Red Rocks or, you know, famous DJs and musicians. And then they teach the, the skill set. And then I moved to the mentorship program because I'm a soccer player and I want to talk to DJ kids about what it's like to play in front of 60,000 people because that's interesting to see that. And, and there's no reason why we can't crossbreed that mindset. Uh, and so that's kind of what I do with the program now. And then with the app is what we're going to do is really create a, a bridge so we can connect those things. Those digital lessons from celebrities can turn into online lessons that any kid from anywhere can learn. And they can learn my story in a six part lesson about grit and they can sleep on their floors in, in London and be like, yo, Jay, what's up? I just did this because tomorrow I got my, or not tomorrow, next week I got an interview uh, for a job offer and I'm going to sleep on this because I know how important this is and I'm going to put me in the mindset to do so. And like These are ways that through an app we can we can create this communication and, and, and really, uh, you know, start to bring a better curriculum as to how you create these kids in their paths. And, 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 and our, I don't think that our programs are uh, on a, on a, on a singular level, sports, music, arts are doing that in a holistic way. That's awesome. I mean, I, do you guys do this for adults? I mean, can I come up here and, and take this course? <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Well, that's also what the music festival is. You know, that's a bunch of us. You know, we get 2,000 of our friends that are all professionals in a bunch of different fields and, you know, we want to have a good time just like anybody else. I always encourage anyone I know, from adults to, to kids, if you don't have a music festival in your life, your life isn't as good as it could be. What's what's that one artist that uh, we need to be listening to to get our grit on right now? <laughs> Jay Demerit. Good question. Um I mean, I listen to a lot of electronic music. I got my buddies, the Funk Hunters. Um, they got a song called Raise Your Fist that I like to listen to. Done. Awesome. Well, that concludes the interview portion of uh, the podcast, Jay. I do want to finish up with what we're going to call the Jay Demerit Quiz. And I have three questions for you based on some of your your moments of your career. And uh, I want to see if you can get them all right. So question number one is... In the playoff final versus Leeds, you guys won 3-0. Besides yourself, who are the two other goal scorers and what minute were they in? Oh, you're killing me on the minute. Uh, <laughs> well, it was uh, James Chambers' looping ball off the post as goal number two. And he well, – that would have been probably, I'm going to say – 57th minute. That's spot on, but it was an own goal. <laughs> an own goal, but oh no, it wasn't. <laughs> I'm giving it to my boy. <laughs> but yeah, the 57th minute was correct. And who was the third goal and what minute? Uh, Darius Henderson penalty kick. 82nd? 84th. Oh, that's still amazing. Ah. Amazing. I'll give that one to you. Okay, so when you guys played England in 2010 World Cup, can you name the starting 11 for England? No chance. I can try. Emil <laughs> uh, Husky, Wayne Rooney, Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard. Who was on the wing? Uh, Aaron Lennon, maybe? No. Yep, yep. Uh, Robert Green in goal. Because famously enough, yeah. my agent had 
my agent had two players in the World Cup, and they were me and Robert Green. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting story. That's great. Uh, uh, let's see who the center halves were: John, John Terry, and Rio Ferdinand. No. Rio? Uh, no. I'll give you a hint. He had bad knees. Bad knees. Was he old at the time? Not old. Played for Tottenham. Ledley King? Yes. Yep. Okay, him. <laughs> Who would have been Ashley Cole? Yes. Right back would have been. I don't know. This one's a tough one. He's doing well, maybe. He was. He, he wasn't right back, but he was. Uh, Did yeah, Milner play? Played. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Yeah. He's got an all but one actually at this moment, yeah. right? <laughs> the right back. This isn't an easy one though. What did that been? Give me his club. I'll see if I know. Well, club. he played for several. At the time, I think he might have been playing for Liverpool. Liverpool, yeah. Did he? Did he play for Stoke sure. later? Played for Stoke. He played for Portsmouth. He played for Chelsea. Oh, uh, Glenn Johnson. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that at all. No. <laughs> okay. Last question. According to TransferMarket.com, which is an English gaming website. What was your highest transfer value, and in what year did that occur? Good question. Uh, I'm going to say, I don't know, maybe $3 million, and it would have been probably my premiership season, so that would have been like 2006, 2007-ish, maybe even 2008. Close on all fronts. This says, and again, I'm quoting this website, 2.2 million, but this says 2010. That post-World Cup high. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you killed it, though. Started every game in the World Cup. <laughs> yeah. So. And you still can't make over three mil. That's shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. Like, I got to keep working. Everyone else in my position that played in a World Cup is, like, in their huge houses hanging out. I'm over here with my grit in my pocket, and that's about it. <laughs> Grit is a life what program. Rob, what Let's was go. Rob Green? What was Rob Green's value at post 2010? Negative. It's higher than 2.2. <laughs> He'll never yeah. live that yeah. one. That was down. a good agent, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, that concludes um, the American Outlaws podcast with Jay Demerit. I want to thank Jay on behalf of the American Outlaws for joining us today. Awesome stuff. Congrats on an amazing career and congrats on what you have going on now, which sounds equally inspiring. Um, I think the best part of this podcast was that Corey Don, who wasn't on it, but um, the second best part was having Jay and hearing these stories. And we look forward to having you again soon. If, if you're up for it. Oh, hundred percent. You know, again, I've always had a great relationship with AO and, you know, I, you know, I understand that you guys are the lifeblood of what we do, you know, and, and it's always appreciative for, for players as well to, to, to engage with fans, to, to understand that you guys are, are equally important to this whole solution. And uh, anytime I can come and share some stories and, 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 uh, and some sweat and tears, that, that that's what it's all about. So, you know, anytime, you know, again, this is a thing that this could go for another three hours. That's the best <laughs> I know. Part it. it really could. I have more questions, uh, but it's all right. Story arena. So, yeah. <laughs> anytime, guys. Always a pleasure, and uh, we'll see you soon. Cool. Well, we look forward to having you back, Jay. Thanks again for listening. Check out our other podcasts uh, previously uh, with Jimmy Conrad and Benny Falheiber, and look for the next one coming up soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you.